Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and uh, chapter 30 and verse 15. Now there is a, uh, a little bit of a translation issue. It's not a major issue. Uh, the, the word that the ESV translates as returning is the same word that is also translated elsewhere in the uh, Old Testament as repenting. And so uh, the NIV actually has this text in a slightly different way, and I actually like it better. I usually don't say that about the NIV, but we'll read the ESV, and then you can plug it in. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength but you were unwilling. Father, we ask that you would make your book live for us this morning and that you would show us yourself and your word and that you would show us ourselves. We pray that we would understand and from a posture of understanding, we would believe. And from a posture of believing, we would live. We would live as though these things are true. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are, are uh, if you study philosophy at all, and probably most of you don't, you will understand that uh, there are a host of competing and complementary philosophies that have kind of crashed together in our day and age to make the modern worldview. And one of those is a distinctly American philosophy. It's called pragmatism. Pragmatism. Pragmatism is the defining spirit of our age, and pragmatism is that philosophy of life which says, I'm really not concerned with whether an idea is true in some eternal or transcendent way or by some transcendent standard. I'm not really concerned whether an idea is good by some transcendent standard. What we are concerned about is will we get the results we want if we put this idea into practice. That's pragmatism. It's a philosophical movement. Uh, it came on the scene in America in the late 19th century. Uh, if you're familiar with the name Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a Supreme Court justice in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he was the, one of the architects of pragmatism. And uh, by the early 20th century, it had made its mark in our education system through a man named John Dewey and uh, in our legal system by Oliver Wendell Holmes, as I mentioned before. This is America's unique contribution to the history of philosophy. Nobody else came up with this, this was us. Uh, so it shouldn't surprise us that as Americans, we are influenced by these, degree, these ideas to one degree or another. Um, when we decide upon a goal and then decide we think that goal is good and it's desirable, and then we decide, okay, this is the, the best means to attain that goal, and we begin implementing those ideas without ever giving a thought to whether the goal is really good in an eternal way, or if our chosen means of reaching the goal are good in an eternal way, then we're just being pragmatists. The pragmatist has very little patience for ideas that don't seem to work or that don't have a clear outcome. And so when a pragmatist meets with a non-pragmatist, he says things like, we always talk things to death around here. 
Or how are we ever going to get things done that way? Or why are you so opposed to doing things this way? This is the way things actually work in the world. Now, there is a difference between being a pragmatist and being practical, and being a practical person. And that difference is this. The practical person can allow in their thinking for a God who works in impractical and supernatural ways and who steers all of human history according to his plans and his methods and his wisdom, which is higher than ours. You see, the pragmatist thinks, I see everything I need to see. The practical man who takes God into account or the practical woman who takes God into account says, I'm not sure I see everything I need to see to make an informed and wise decision. The pragmatist can never really take God into account. He can give lip service to these things if he's a Christian pragmatist, but fundamentally, this is how he lives his life, by saying either in word or deed, you know, the Lord really just helps those who help themselves. Now, what does that have to do with our text this morning from Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15? Well, it has everything to do with it, loved ones. You see, pragmatism may have been codified and formalized by 19th and 20th century Americans, but it's been around in one form or another for a long, long time. We're going to be talking about the nations and empires in the time of the Old Testament, and these are names you may have heard before or you may not have heard before. Uh, the, the, the most important player is the little tiny nation, the southern kingdom of Judah. This is after the, the civil war between the Jews and the kingdom split and the southern kingdom is tiny. It's Judah. And these are during the times of Isaiah the prophet. And Judah during these times was a politically and militarily weak player on the international scene. It also happened to be situated between two great empires. And these two great empires were the superpowers of their day. They didn't like each other. They wanted to conquer each other. And Judah was right in the middle. And both nations, both empires, wanted to control Judah. To the southwest was the Egyptian empire. And they were somewhat, by this point in time, a declining power, but they were still a great power nonetheless. To the northeast, centered in the city of Nineveh, which is near the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq, were the Assyrians. Now, we don't want to be confused with, uh, we don't want to confuse the Assyrians with the Syrians. The Assyrians were headquartered in Nineveh. The Syrians were headquartered in Damascus, and they had been an empire as well. And I want to look this morning briefly at Judah's pressing problem. Then second, I want to look at Judah's sinful solution. And then I want to look at God's practical promise. So Judah's pressing problem, her sinful solution, and God's 
practical promise. First is Judah's pressing problem. Within the lifetime of Isaiah the prophet, the Assyrian Empire had begun to grow stronger and stronger, and it began to threaten its neighbors. And so two of its neighbors come to Judah, and they come to the king of Judah with an offer that was supposed to be an offer that Judah could not refuse. And the two nations that came and approached the king of Judah were, first of all, the northern kingdom of Israel, and second of all, the king of the Syrians, the Syrian empire in Damascus. And these two kings came to the king of Judah, and they basically said, hey, like, you know, like a mafia movie, hey, you are now in an alliance with us against the Assyrian empire in Nineveh whether you like it or not. This is an offer you can't refuse. Well, the king of Judah didn't want to be in an alliance with these two. And he especially didn't want to be in an alliance with these two against the mighty Assyrian empire, which was only growing stronger and stronger. And so he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so those two kings that came to him said, all right, well, then we're going to attack you and we're going to make you do what we want you to do. And so the armies of Israel and Syria attack Jerusalem. And so the king of Jerusalem sends an ambassador to the king, uh, the emperor of the Assyrian empire, and he says, hey, these guys over here, they wanted me to be in an alliance with them against you. And I said, no, because I really like you, and I really respect you, and I think you're going places in life. And now they've attacked me for saying no. How about you and I form an alliance? And then you could come and help me out. Well, the king of the Assyrians, the emperor of the Assyrians said, yeah, sure, because he knew a good thing when he saw it. And he had planned on invading all those people later anyway on his way to Egypt. And so the king of the Assyrians invades Syria and conquers Damascus, and then he invades the northern kingdom of Israel, and he conquers that, and he carries almost all of the inhabitants off to some other area of the empire, and he resettles them. And this happened in 722 BC. And if you've ever heard the phrase, the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that's how they got lost. And you can find this story, if you're interested, in the book of 2 Kings and in chapter 17. And then he made Judah what's called a vassal state. In other words, you may think you're running things, but I'm really running things. And from there, he imposed heavy taxes and burdens. He began meddling in the internal affairs of the kingdom of Judah. He began meddling in her religious worship. Uh, He changed the, the temple and remodeled part of the temple, and he put a new altar in, and all of a sudden you have all these shrines to other gods going up in the midst of the temple. And the stupid king who did all of that died. And his son takes the throne in his place. And his son was a man named Hezekiah. Good king Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a godly man. And he began, first of all, by cleaning up the worship of the people of God in the temple. And And by this time, pretty much everybody in Judah is sick of the Assyrians. And it becomes obvious that a showdown is coming. 
In order to obey God, Hezekiah ends up having to disobey the king of the Assyrian Empire. And now the king of the Assyrian Empire is angry about that. He finds out about it, and he's angry about it. And he comes with an overwhelmingly vast army to attack Jerusalem. Huge army. And now Judah is faced with the same empire, which had literally wiped the northern kingdom off the map, as well as the Assyrians next door on the other side of the Jordan River in Damascus. So that was Judah's pressing problem. They're about to be invaded by the most powerful army in the world at that time. They're right on the doorstep. They're literally camped around the walls. What was Judah's sinful solution? Well, it was a very pragmatic one. And it went like this. If the largest and most powerful empire in the world is threatening you, then make an alliance with the second largest, second most powerful empire in the world, and maybe they will come and help you. And so Hezekiah, good king Hezekiah, is pressed by his advisors and even by his own people to go and to make an alliance with the Egyptians. There is, you've got to understand, there is no way for Judah to stand on her own against Assyria. These people have conquered and destroyed everything in their path, including their neighbors to the north, their brothers and sisters, their fellow Jews in the northern kingdom. And surrender is not an option. It will lead to complete decimation. And so everybody says, look, let's just go to the Egyptians for help. They'll be glad to help. I hear they're eager to help, actually. And of course, once you do that, if they're able to get you out of trouble, they'll just do what the Assyrians did after they help, they will impose heavy taxes, they will begin meddling in your politics, and they will station foreign troops here to protect us, and they will demand the way uh, that we change the way that we worship and who we worship. But, but who cares about all that right now? They had, a, they had a saying in the Old Testament, better a live dog than a dead lion. In other words, you may be a coward, but you can live and, and be a coward another day, but if you're brave and you get slaughtered, you're just dead. You can't eat your principles, you know. You've got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, you know. And, and isn't the most important thing that, that we survive? Isn't the most important thing that our cities stay intact and our farmlands remain undisturbed? Our economy will then be intact and productive. Those ought to be your overriding concerns as a leader of your people, King Hezekiah. So go make an alliance with Egypt. It is our only hope. Well, the fact of the matter is that the goals and means of the pragmatist are seldom truly good. And they're seldom not even good, they're not good goals and they're not good means of attaining those goals, not as God defines the good. You see, the pragmatist is focused on well-being in the here and now for just this moment. And Jesus says to us, that's silly. Jesus says to us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's better to die the death of a godly man than capitulate to wickedness and live longer. It's better to be poor and godly rather than rich and ungodly. It's better to be small and true to the Lord rather than big and compromised. It's better to be strong in spirit and weak in the flesh rather than strong in the flesh and weak in the spirit. 
it's better to trust God and have no plan rather than to have an ungodly plan. And that's really the, the crux of it, isn't it? And that just doesn't just happen to nations and empires in the ancient Near East. That's the things that face us day in and day out. We are, in and of ourselves, inadequate to meet the challenges of life, whatever they may be. We may think, I'm very adequate. I work very hard. I will white-knuckle this. I've done this, 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 and this. Be patient. Circumstances are coming that will completely overwhelm your ability to manage them. And when they do, you've got a choice to make. Despair, further wheedling and wheeling and dealing and manipulating, or capitulation to God. We're not adequate. And yet we are desperately trying to convince ourselves that we are adequate or that we can become adequate. And so we try by hook and by crook to get adequate. And you say, well, why is that bad, Pastor? That seems to me like a good thing to do. Well, because God designed us to live in interdependent partnership with him. And God wants us to say, I'm not adequate. But God, you are. Therefore, I will not run around frantically trying to shore things up and doing unwise, stupid, or sinful things to do it. I will trust in you rather than in my own arm of flesh. Now, some people look at that and say, well, that will lead you to passivity and inactivity. Absolutely not. It absolutely will not. It leads to exactly the right kind of activity, to exactly the right decree, degree, and at exactly the right time. And so God makes a very practical promise in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. God says to Isaiah and to the people of Israel, and particularly King Hezekiah, the people of Judah, rather, and Hezekiah, you want to do something? You feel like you need to do something? Try this. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. In repentance or returning and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. That's the key to effectiveness in God's kingdom. It's to admit your insufficiency, to return to God or repent. The word can mean either. Most scholars think both concepts are actually implied here. To repent of your self-sufficiency, to admit your insufficiency, to return to God, and to rest in Him. You say, well, then what? Well, then it's time for quietness and trust. In other words, having ceased to rely on self and having looked instead to God, just maintain that posture. Just continue to do that. If God brings to mind or to your attention something that needs to be done, do it. And then leave the outcomes with God. But fundamentally what you're doing is you're saying, God, I'm not adequate. You are. And you're moving. And you've asked me to just be still. Just be quiet. 
just obey you. Just to cease striving, says the psalmist in another place, and know that I am God. Quiet your spirit and trust him. And he will tell you what to do, and he will tell you when to do it, and it will be something that is entirely within your ability to do when it's time to do it. And the things will get solved. And he'll get the glory. Well, you say to yourself, okay, how did that turn out for Isaiah? How did that turn out for King Hezekiah? If you've got your Bibles, open to 2 Kings, way back in your Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 19. I love these old stories from 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. There's so much in there. 2 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 5. 2 Kings 19, 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Notice they're picking on not just Hezekiah, not just the Jewish people, on their God. Behold, says God, through the prophet Isaiah, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tiraka, king of Cush, behold, he is sent out to fight against you. And so he sent messengers again to Hezekiah saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now this is the king of Assyria who's hearing rumors about bad things happening both back home and in other places that he's worried about. Thus you shall speak to king Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of those nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezef and the people of Eden who were at Tel Asar? Where is the king of Hamath? Or the king of Arpad, the city of the king of the, the king of the city of the Sepharavim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva. Where are all these guys that said they were going to stand up against me? Where are their gods? They're toast. And Hezekiah, you're going to be just like them. And so Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. I mean, look at what he does. Then Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all of the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear 
Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Now skip forward to verse 32 and see the answer to Hezekiah's prayer. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. For by the way he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. And when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh, and as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. We used to say, God will make a way where there is no way. We don't sing that song very often anymore. I'm not sure we believe it anymore. But it's still true. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Do you believe that? Amen.